This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. We live in the time of the great virus. I'm not sure how great it is, or frankly, how even powerful it is. But whatever your views on what the virus really is, we're all socially distancing. We're all spread out. We're not going to church, not because we've fallen inactive. There is no church to go to. We're not going to school, not because we're playing hooky. There's no school. Likewise for work, restaurants, baseball games. We are not living in groups anymore. No one's quite sure how temporary any of this is going to be. Only one thing seems increasingly certain, though even this is not certain, but it seems increasingly certain. And it's this, when this is all over, things just aren't going to be the way they were before. The group, as previously constructed, will be different. All of our groups, as previously constructed, will be different, I think. Our wards, our families, the way we interact, the way we go to work, the way we order out and watch sports or movies, or entertainment, or travel, any of this stuff. Every single group, every single organization that draws people in to be together, it's all going to change, I think. I know I'm sounding dramatic here. But I think, in fact, when we look on this in hindsight, I'll be understating how dramatic the changes will be. By way of example, a month ago, I texted my brother, and I told him I would never wear a mask, ever. This is America. I will never wear a mask. I refuse. I don't care what the punishment might be. I'm not doing it. No way. Well, this morning, I wore a mask going into the convenience store to get a soda. And the reason I did it was really not because I was afraid. I'm really not afraid of the virus. I did it really for all the other people who are afraid of the virus and get freaked out when someone walks into the store without a mask. And so I put a mask on out of courtesy. That group, the group of people inside that store, well, that group has changed forever. This past weekend, my wife and I drove up to the North Shore here in Massachusetts, and we went to a little town, Peabody, which is right next to Salem. There's a little island there and a little lighthouse and a little beach, and we walked around this little beach, and everyone there had masks on. We were avoiding all the other people. Again, that group, that collection of people, different probably forever. We haven't even gotten into how we're going to all work, go to school, travel, entertain. No one's figured any of this out. But the only thing that seems certain is that it's all going to be different. Then maybe that's not so bad. I'm reminded of a time when I was serving on the local high council here, here in my stake in New England. I know that comes as a surprise to some of you that I was on a high council, but you know, it is the hinterlands here and If you show up week in and week out, then, you know, you got a pretty good chance of being on the high council. I was on the high council several years ago. The high council of any particular stake is a distinctive group. It's comprised of 12 high priests from the stake and the stake presidency. That's the high council. And the high council, like all groups, had a form of group think. And group think is different than mere aggregated individual think. Groupthink is its own thing. If you took these 12 high priests, 
and the stake presidency and you isolated each of them individually, you'd get 15 separate opinions about any given topic, I'm sure. And there might be some overlap, but there'd be 15 individuals' views on things. But when you throw those 15 into a room, you don't just aggregate all the ideas and come up with an even better idea, although that can happen sometimes. But what happens most of the time is that the group coalesces around a dominant view, a dominant narrative. And this dominant view and narrative is often not shared by the majority of the group, but they go along with it to fit in with the group because the dynamics of a group change the way that we think as individuals. Once we get into a group, we start thinking, okay, what's my role? How do I fit in? What, you know, How am I going to get along? That becomes a, a primary concern, more important to us often than maintaining our own opinions about things. And we're all very, very susceptible to this. We all do it subconsciously. And groupthink's not always bad. I mean, it's also the way that we kind of help each other out and fit in and get protection from each other. There can be safety in the group, of course, and we all know that instinctively. But there is nonetheless an underbelly of groupthink, a distortion that emerges when a group coalesces around the dominant opinion, the dominant narrative. And groups can very easily morph into groups of lemmings or groups of sheeple that just charge over the cliff down into the ocean to their demise. The virus has exposed all of the groups that we pre-virus were a part of, and all of the group think that pre-virus we participated in, and I think has revealed for a lot of us how insane some of the group think that we've experienced pre-virus really is. I had a horrible realization while participating in Zoom church. That's what we're doing out here in New England. Instead of real church, we're doing Zoom church, and we're really not doing it every week. We haven't had real church for more than two months. The first month of no church at all because of the virus, we did nothing. They just, you know, I guess do it with your family. We we're supposed to do that. This past, past month, we've had, you know, sort of Zoom church. It's, we had a fast and testimony meeting on Zoom one week. Then the next week, there was elders, quorum for the elders. And, and then the following week, there was Release Society for the sisters but when there was elders, there was on that week, there was nothing for the sisters. And when the sisters had their Zoom meeting, there was nothing for the, the elders. So it was, I don't know, it's, it's not quite the same. But I did realize something, nonetheless, during the Zoom fast and testimony meeting. And the groupthink element that I realized, I think maybe for the first time, while participating via Zoom in this fast and testimony meeting, and by the way, it wasn't conducted as like a, like a, like a normal fast and testimony meeting. I mean, the, the, the Zoom screen on your computer wasn't just open to anybody to, to chime in. You know, those who wanted to give their testimony were supposed to send an email to the bishop, you know, several days ahead of time, and then it was scheduled out, and there was a... It, it was not spontaneous like our fast and testimony meetings are. So it was scheduled. You could sign up, but it was all done ahead of time. Anyways, the people who had signed up were the, the usual suspects in my ward. They were the folks who typically get up and give their testimony on Sundays. And, and that wasn't really a surprise. But what was a surprise was this fear that seemed to pulsate through the comments of everybody during this meeting, from the bishop to all the people who shared their views. And the theme was basically, we're living in a very wicked world. These are the end of times. This is a very horrible, difficult time. The world's very unrighteous, and we're all really struggling. 
And I know if I do what I'm told to do by our leaders and everything will be fine. Amen. Now, just to be clear, I think there is a lot to be afraid of right now during this period. It's an uncertain time. But I think fear of the wickedness of the world, fear that the end of the world is coming, the apocalypse is nigh. I don't think that's the fear most of the members in my ward are experiencing, right? I could be wrong, but I just don't think that's what people are thinking. But the dominant narrative, the groupthink that dominates, I think much of our meetings of this sort are of this ilk. And the result is it's, it's hard to get up and say something that contradicts the dominant groupthink. Because if you do, you're basically saying the world's really not that wicked. Let's, let's pull it together. You know, all these stories of the great apocalypse, these are, uh, you know, we're not sure we really buy into those literally. And even if we do, we think it's a long, long time in the future. And living in a state of fear is fundamentally unhealthy. You can't get up in fast and testimony meeting and say that. Because if you do, then the group somehow knows you're calling them out at some level. And what's odd about the group is even the group that doesn't agree with these apocalyptic, the world is so wicked pronouncements, they'll turn on you too because they know that you're upsetting the apple cart. And therein lies the problem of groupthink. And it's all subconscious and no one even realizes that they're engaging in it, including me, by the way, most of the time, unless I'm really paying attention. These sort of dynamics play out at the workplace, at the schools, wherever you are, there's an orthodoxy of some sort, a dominant narrative, a dominant opinion that the group, whatever that group is, has coalesced around for whatever reasons, either because they really believe it or because it's simpler to just coalesce around this or they need order or there's a need to belong or whatever those, those incentives are, they have nothing to do with the, the truth or the validity of the dominant narrative or opinion. That's probably too strong. They probably have something to do with it, but not as much as you think. There's all these other kind of considerations. They've done studies to try to get at the nut of this. One study that's been done was a study of groups of people at dinner. And they found out people's preferences before the group got together, and then they monitored what people actually ordered at dinner. And by the way, this is low-stakes dinner we're talking. You know, it's not you know, how you're going to live your life and whether or not you're going to commit to some lifestyle or workplace or religion. It's dinner. Very low stakes. You would think no one would be threatened by ordering the wrong thing. So they, so they compared people's preferences before the group got together, together at dinner and then how people actually ordered while they were with the group at dinner. And what was so interesting is the group coalesced around a few dishes that, that everyone seemed to think were the safe choices, were not outliers, that wouldn't make them stand out. They, they all kind of coalesced around a couple things. Isn't that interesting? They would follow the lead in some cases of the, the dominant personality at dinner on what they were going to order and would go along with, you know, the family style appetizer selections that maybe they didn't even want, you know, and we all do this. That's what's so interesting about it. everyone. Well, the virus has come along and it's reducing the power of the dominant narrative from all of our various groups that we participate in or, or did participate in pre-virus. 
the virus, at least temporarily, has splintered us all back into individuals and has made us aware, I think, of our own views on things, our own opinions, again, anew. And when we all come back together in whatever groups that is, things are going to be different, I think. Because a lot of us are saying, you know, I really didn't like that treadmill I was on pre-virus, or I really thought the way that this group did this job or this organization conducted these affairs. I think I just don't, I'm not keen on all that stuff. The virus, in a sense, by separating us has also awakened us, awakened us to our own views. It's freed us from the desire to fit in with the group and made us more aware of our own thoughts. And this is either extremely liberating or horribly terrifying. Because for some of us, it's a lot easier to get on with the group than it is to face our own thoughts. Because it's two different skills, isn't it? The subconscious slash unconscious slash instinctive navigation of the group and how one fits in one's role. That's a fundamentally different skill, different mental process than paying attention to, being aware of, and assessing one's own thoughts and opinions about things and how you're going to respond, react, live in harmony with those personal truths. And some people have spent their entire lives, many of us, and it's not a good or bad thing, but many of us have spent our entire lives in the former state, this instinctive fitting in state of mind. And, and that has its role. That, that has its purpose. I'm not trying to denigrate that. But, but that path is not the path to awakening. That's not the path to enlightenment or realization. The path to personal understanding is the path of the loner. Coming to terms with your own views, your own impulses, your own thoughts on things by yourself alone, that can only be done when you're freed from the group. That's why most stories of the mystics involve, you know, 40 days fasting in the desert or hiking up to the top of the mountain and finding the burning bush or sailing alone on the sea, guided by some little ball. In this sense, the virus has put everyone's lives on pause and made everyone look into the mirror and ask the uncomfortable question, what do I really think and what do I really want? And that's the question I'm going to pose to you. What is it that you really think, really believe, really want? Not what the group that you belong to wants or thinks. Not the shoulds and woulds and coulds, but you. It's a hard thing to consider, and it's even harder at times to be comfortable with it, it being your authentic beliefs, your authentic desires. And what's strange about this particular moment in time is we get to ask this question about, well, just about every aspect of our lives, our religious life, our professional life, our family life, how much we want to work, how much energy we want to expend because of the virus and the separation and the demolition of all the groups that we've been participating in, perhaps strictly out of habit for months, years, decades, because of all that, all of us 
have way more time to confront what we really think and feel and desire and believe. For those of you trying to make these personal assessments pre-virus, for those who have already started down this path, pre-virus, this whole virus lockdown, well, it's kind of a welcome thing, isn't it? Because suddenly it's way easier to be introspective because the noise level has gone way down. But for those who have never done anything but try to fit in with the group and have never considered their own thoughts, well, it's, it's disconcerting. For many of us, it's great in some aspects of our lives and disconcerting in others. It'll be interesting to see how all this percolates through the church. There's an old trope that I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase badly. I'm going to butcher it probably, but it's basically this. You can go decades and decades with nothing happening. And then you can go weeks where decades happen. Well, these past few weeks, these past two months, I think several decades of change have occurred. And it'll be interesting what everything looks like on the other side. In 2 Kings chapter 24, there's mention of a guy named Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not free when Zedekiah was king. This is 600 BC, plus or minus. Israel, as it was formed by David and later ruled by Solomon, had been around for a couple hundred years already, had already been split in half. The northern kingdom had been attacked, had fallen. The members of that northern kingdom had been dispersed. And the only thing that remained when Zedekiah was king was the southern kingdom, also known as Judah, the kingdom of Judah. Zedekiah was a puppet ruler of sorts. He had been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar appointed Zedekiah after he had sacked Jerusalem the first time, when Jehoiakim was king. When Jehoiakim was king, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came the first time and sacked Jerusalem, which was the capital city of the kingdom of Judah. We don't talk much about this earlier sacking of Jerusalem, because it was sort of like a mini sacking. It wasn't a total destruction of Jerusalem. All we know is that Jehoiakim, the king previous to Zedekiah, he rebelled against Babylon. So Jerusalem was already sort of a, a subject of Babylon, a protectorate of sorts. And the titular king, Jehoiakim, well, he rebelled against his benefactor, Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and did sort of a sacking light, kind of a, a, a moderate a light to moderate sacking of Jerusalem. And he didn't destroy the whole city. He just took away some of the aristocrats and some of the craftsmen and some of the nobility. And he hauled them off to Babylon sort of as a sort of as hostage in waiting as a way of, to control Jerusalem. And then at that time, he put Zedekiah in charge. Zedekiah didn't learn from Jehoiakim's errors, and he rebelled against Babylon as well. And then Nebuchadnezzar came and just destroyed the whole place. He surrounded the city. He sieged it famine prevailed. People started starving. Then the walls of Jerusalem were breached. The Babylonian army went in. They caught Zedekiah. They killed all of his sons in front of him. And then they put his eyes out and carried him off and rounded up the rest of the nobility and frankly, anyone else who hadn't starved and carried them off as slaves to Babylon too. And the Israel and the Jerusalem as set up by David and Solomon kind of ceased to exist from that point forward. That was the final collapse of Israel as, as anything that even looked like an independent nation. 
And my point in raising this story of Zedekiah and the final fall of Jerusalem is that a lot can happen very rapidly in a short period of time. But life after these dramatic short bursts and changes, life afterwards is never the same. Life in Jerusalem and Israel after Zedekiah, after those walls had been breached, well, it was, it was, never, it was over. It was done. And life for all the occupants of Jerusalem and life for all of their children, for everyone who came after Zedekiah, their lives were completely altered. Davidic Israel was over forever once Zedekiah capitulated to Babylon. Their lives, that culture, gone, only living in remnants as memories among the diaspora. That's it. How interesting that the story of Zedekiah also is told at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, not only the beginning of the Book of Mormon, but at the beginning of the best part of the Book of Mormon, which is the great journey from Jerusalem somewhere else. The very first story is a departure from the group in Jerusalem out to the wilderness, out to the sea, out to where there was very little, if any, groupthink, where the wanderers were being guided by God, and that's it. Something which is difficult to do if you're not aware of your own internal workings. And sometimes life shows up. Sometimes the divine shows up and just pushes you out into the wilderness because maybe the divine and life and God knows when it's time to rethink things, to reevaluate, to get off the treadmills, the treadmills that consume so much of our energy that we've been expending just to stay in the same place. Sometimes God just wants us to wake up and think anew, to think independently, authentically, to turn to Him for real insight and understanding and guidance. And these events can happen suddenly and rapidly, and the changes can be profound and permanent. And it can be terrifying, but only if you think God's not around guiding you. But God is guiding you, and He'll make Himself known which is maybe why we've all been pushed into the wilderness to begin with. Because in the wilderness, it's quiet and it's peaceful. And in the wilderness, we can hear ourselves think. And most importantly, in the wilderness, you can hear God speak. I think God's always speaking. But if you're obsessed, even subconsciously, with how you fit into the group, your role vis-a-vis the group, your status, your position, if you're instinctively following those impulses, your antenna or your perceptions or however it is that we hear God won't hear God because your attention is elsewhere. I went down to the city about six weeks ago, right after the lockdown was imposed. Boston is a, is a big, hulking city with lots and lots and lots of office buildings and towers and and it's crowded and there's traffic and it's chaotic and the, the roads are windy and nothing's organized because it's so old. We went down two weeks after the lockdown was imposed and the entire city was empty. I'd never seen it that way. It was very strange. All the buildings were empty. All the lights were out. We went to the North End, which is usually just packed with tourists. It's full of restaurants, totally empty. It was kind of chilly that day, and it was a little breezy, and I heard 
a piece of paper blowing by on the pavement. I could hear the paper crinkling on the pavement as it was blown by. You can't hear the piece of paper normally blowing by in Boston in the North End because it's too noisy. But on that particular day, you could. And listening to that piece of paper scrape along the pavement as the wind blew it, well, that was a different experience than sitting in a room with earplugs in, which is the equivalent to what many of us resolve to do when it gets too loud and noisy and chaotic in the world. We, we withdraw. We have to go somewhere where it's, where it's quiet and seal ourselves off from everything else. Well, it's different when you're out in the world and the world is quiet. Then you can really hear God's voice. I mean, it's one thing to withdraw from groups. It's quite another when all the groups are disbanded. It's one thing to withdraw from the world. It's quite another when the world is just quiet and peaceful. And I think God's telling us that we need to be collectively more quiet, more peaceful, so that we can hear His voice. And what is His voice? His voice is love, abundance, experience, joy, playfulness, all those things that we think we don't deserve. All those things we think we need to only exist in fantasy lands, because in the real world, there's nothing but danger, which is why we coalesce around groups and dominant narratives to begin with. But it's nice sometimes when we're told to go up into the mountain or into the wilderness, and there there's a burning bush, or there there's a ball that's a director, or there far away is a treasure that we never considered before. This is why God sends any of us on these paths, these personalized, individualized paths of discovery and insight and enlightenment. Because I think he wants us to know that we do belong with him. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time. 